Our chapter this morning is Genesis chapter 21, so if you would turn in your Bibles. Kind of having a debate with myself about whether to read all or part. I think I'm just going to read all right now. So 34 verses, that's not exceptionally long, but I'm just going to reach out to you and say, please uh, try to be attentive. Don't let your mind wander so you are conversant with the story and then we'll just keep plowing right ahead. I think that may be a little more effective with this particular lesson today. So in Genesis chapter 21, then we'll have a word of prayer. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did so, or did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now note the time note. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, that's Ishmael of course, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing. That's literally was evil in the eyes of Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. Now see, wives, right there, that's your, that's your verse. Mark that down. Now you've got a verse for life. All the wives can always say, see, the Lord told Abraham to do what Sarah said. I say, you got it there. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for though through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. We would say an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So here's the second part of the chapter. We're just going to plow on. 
at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing, and you did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take away from my hand, you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore the name of the place was called Beersheba. So Beersheba, the word beer in Hebrew is well. Sheba is either seven or oath. So it's kind of a play on words here. It's either well of the seven or well of the oath. It's either, and it's a double meaning there. Because there are both of them swore an oath, so there's your oath, and then there were the seven, seven was the ewe lambs. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. All right, so we will end our reading now. And let me just ask you, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this day and all the many uh, different items from our normal schedule that it holds for us. And we're always excited about those things, Lord. Glad to hear from missionaries. Thank you that Rosie and Josue are with us. And we look forward to meeting them, getting better acquainted, hearing of the work that you're doing, and seeking wisdom about your leadership in the future. We thank you, too, that a regular part of any Lord's Day here at Community is the Word of God. We thank you that we have that here, that we might study it together, read it together, and teach it. And I pray you'll bless Pastor Cameron in his class, bless us now in this class. Bless anyone, Lord, who's joining us today uh, because of a little difference in the schedule. We know that uh, Daniel's class got disrupted for today, so uh, bless any who are here from that, and any who are joining Pastor Cameron's class. We just want to pray in every endeavor where we open your word to recognize and to confess to you that we are unworthy and we need your strength, um, Father, to do all of this because we can go through motions, but we need the blessed Holy Spirit to come and communicate truths that we need to our hearts. And so, thank you. Uh, you have always proven it, that this is true, that you know who we are, you know our downsitting, you know our uprising, you know our thoughts are far off. You're able to take those things that you've given to me, uh, guide them, and work into the hearts and lives of people who listen today, those specific applications and thoughts that they need so that no one goes away today without a blessing, either in this service or the one to follow. We'll give you the praise now for what you do in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. So we come today to what really is a red-letter chapter in the Bible. You know, there are actually, in the life of Abraham, there are a trilogy of chapters that are just like this. 
This is the first one. Next week in chapter 22 with the sacrifice of Isaac, we come to the second one. And then you can put that to make your third for your trilogy with chapter 24. Those three chapters are the highlight chapters, really, in the story of of Abraham. So we're coming to the first of them. This is kind of my own designation and description, but we're coming to the first of them today. Why do I say this? Well, I mean, about everything has led to this point, has it not? We have the description of the birth of Isaac here. And pretty much everything in the life of Abraham, since we've known him and from God's promises when he left Ur of the Chaldee, he's going to give you the land of Canaan, but he also talks about blessing the nations through him. And, of course, as that unfolds, we recognize that it deals with a seed, which Abraham does not have, but which God promises. We keep going through all these fits and turns as Abraham and Sarah try to figure this out. And we finally get to the child of promise. So there is a sense in which everything has built and led to this point, and there is a sense in which everything flows from this point. So we're kind of coming to a pinnacle in some senses in the story. But there's more, and I, you know, I just don't have time this week, and, it's, and it kind of keeps me off of what I'm trying to do, but here and there I'll toss out little things, and you can sort of... Uh, Hope for that or listen for that or however it strikes you. But there's another reason because there is a foreshadowing in this chapter. Because there is another child of promise yet to be born of Abraham's seed further down the road. And of course that's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we get into the next chapter, chapter 22, you're going to really see some of this foreshadowing come out. So there's tons and tons of stuff going on with all of this. My, my, my orientation, though, I want to stick, not, not to getting into so much of the foreshadowing, though that's really tempting to get off into that because it's just so amazing to see these intricacies in Scripture. But the story of the life of Abraham, so that's kind of what we're going to be doing with this. And that's where I'm focusing today. Even though the title is The Birth of Isaac, I mean, you could call this a lot of things, but what I'd like to point out to you is, is in this chapter, Thinking about the story of the life of Abraham, I find here just an amazing portrayal of the joys of the life of faith. And we all know that God tells us to live by faith, and we also know that without faith it is impossible to please God. We're told this in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, correct? So, when we obey God, trust and obey, the old formula, God always brings great blessing into our lives. And this is an amazing portrayal of that. But in the middle of the story, you've got what what you might call two blemishes. And the thing of it is, when you look at those and analyze those, they're all traceable back to lapses in the life of faith on the part of Abraham and Sarah. And so it it is something that really speaks to my heart. This may not be exclusively true because God does bring trials apart from mistakes that we make into our lives. But as I look back and I think to myself, you know, God has been good to me. He gets the glory for anything that has been accomplished. When I look back, I just figure the other things are my mistakes. And we kind of see that coming out in this story. Now, here's something that would really excite Pastor Cameron. I should shout the word so he, he hears it in there and then... His curiosity would be so perked he wouldn't be able to think of his lesson. 
but you, <laughs> you even have a chiastic arrangement in this chapter. So that's just a big fancy word that talks about a literary device. And uh, sometimes people use letters of the alphabet to try to portray it. So in this case, you'd have thought A, then you'd have thought B, thought B. So in other words, it's A, B, B, and then it ends again on thought A. Or to pin it to what I'm talking about this morning, it starts with joy. In the middle are two lapses, which we're going to see traceable to basically things that Abraham and Sarah, those times when they didn't quite walk the walk as they should have, just like we don't always walk the walk like we should. But more than that, I want to develop them by talking about four people. See, these will all be identified with four people, and that makes this development, I think, a little bit. So joy number one is Isaac. Blemish number one, he'll have to forgive me for this, Ishmael. Blemish number two, or lapse number two, is represented by Abimelech and what goes on there. I'm not saying these people are blemishes. I'm saying they represent in the story. And it ends, as you've seen Pastor Cameron demonstrate so many different times with his hourglass. I mean, it just comes back with a boom at the end. The highest joy, higher even than the birth of the child of promise, is uh, the joy that Abraham finds in God himself. That really grips me. I hope I can get to that and kind of convey that to you because regardless of the blessings that joy and joy they bring that God gives us in life, our greatest joy should really be in God himself. And that's what we're going to be working towards in this. So let's, let's start. By the way, that's why I say you have a, a, a chapter that kind of seems like it's filled with some disparate elements, but this sort of helps see how maybe this is all meant to hang together. All right, let's start with Isaac. So the birth of Isaac, can you imagine the incredible joy? Somewhere in Scripture, there's that expression, and I was thinking about that this morning, not incredible joy, it's joy inexpressible, or unspeakable, as the King James says it. That's in 1 Peter chapter 1. But that's basically, that's a great way of capturing what you've got here. This, can you imagine this couple? This is, this is the culmination of a lifelong dream. Ever since we read back in chapter number 11, now Sarah was barren and had no children. I just want you to think about that for a minute. See, you have to try to identify with these stories and people in Scripture to understand what they felt and what their chemistry was and, and what was going on here. And, can you imagine being in that situation and she's 90, he's 100. And as I've pointed out before, God has in, intentionally brought them through all of this until it's at the place where the only way they can have a child and his promise can be fulfilled is miraculous. His birth was miraculous. Want to talk about foreshadowing? So was that other child of promise. His birth was miraculous. So when this happens, we, um, those of us who kind of went through a normal process, but I'm very conscious of the fact that many folks in the audience may not. And so I'm not trying to call out any pain on your part except to try to get us thinking a little bit about what, what some folks go through. Because, you know, if you've just sort of gone through a natural process of this, you don't think about it too much. And I think sometimes in that sense we take children for granted. And our culture doesn't seem to set too much store by children anymore either, does it? 
which is sad. But in any respect, this is the joy that we're talking about here, and it's enshrined in laughter. Now, this is really neat because what you've got here is three references, and you don't want to miss this because this is kind of how all of this, this is kind of the key to understanding what's going on here. Where are these three references? First of all, in verse number three, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, which means he laughs. So if you go back and you look at the root of this, the, the root, uh, in Hebrew, the, the tri-literal root of this is the word for laughter. It's the verb for to laugh. And so it means he laughs. And you know where that came from, but we'll talk about that more in a moment. Second reference is in verse 6. Sarah, she's basically calls everybody to laugh with her. She's not calling people to laugh at her. She's calling people to laugh with her. She says in verse number 6, God has made laughter for me, or God has made me laugh, as the King James Version puts it. Who, and she says, everyone who hears it will laugh over me, or, you know, as, again, as the King James puts it, will laugh with me. So we have two things going on in here in these first two references, and I'm going to stop here. I'll show you the second one is down in verse number uh, 8 or 9. It says here, but Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So we have three references. Here are the first two. The first one in the name, in verse number three, which means he laughs, I'll call that the laughter of remembrance because the last laugh is on them and God, ha I mean, God has it. I mean, yeah. God said back at the time, name him, he laughs. What was that calling to mind? Well, it, it called to mind their, fo their foibles. It called to mind the fact that both of them in the beginning, we're so caught off guard, God comes up with something that's so over the top that they just, you know, and there are shades of difference between the chapter 17 where Abraham laughed and chapter 18 where Sarah's, Sarah laughed. We aren't going to go back over their ground. Right, and right now we're just going to say this is the laughter of remembrance because it's their, it, it highlights their foibles. And when you think of their foibles, just think of ours. Their foibles over against God's faithfulness. But it's all enshrined in this. And it's not only enshrined in this, it's an emotion. It's an incredibly evocative emotion that demonstrates the joy that they were experiencing. Now, Sarah is so ecstatic that she's virtually laughing at herself. As I say here in verses 6 and 7, this is the laughter of rejoicing. So in these two... These first two references, we have what I'll call the laughter of remembrance and the laughter of rejoicing. Now there's a third laughter, which brings us now to, call it scene two, character two, but we're going to cross now out of our first chiastic point of joy and move to our first lapse, so from A to B. What do we read here? Well, they make a feast, a great feast, when this baby is... Isaac is weaned. Now here again, kind of got to think a little differently than what we think in American culture because I won't presume to get into stuff that I only know as a fact and don't know in practice. But we wean children, ladies who breastfeed, wean children at a younger age in modern culture like today. In the Bible, all right, don't anybody gasp or faint. Three to five, we won't get into that. 
But this is really important to know because now it's going to allow us to fix some ages. So what did the Bible say? Abraham was how old when Isaac was born? A hundred. Do you remember back, how old was he when Ishmael was born? Eighty-six. So if you subtract those two numbers, now at least this is how I learned in school, that makes 14. So he would have been 14 when this boy was born. He's a teenager. He's a, a younger teenager. But now you're talking about, let's just go with the minimum. I can't bear the thought of the other. Let's go with the minimum. Three. Now he's, roughly speaking, 17. Uh, you got a horse of another color on your hands now. And that's why when you read down through this story about when they're out in the, they're out in the wilderness of Beersheba, and the Bible makes reference that she set the child down under a bush, and you're thinking, well, did she have a, you know, a little papoose or something? You know? No, she was carrying a skin of water. She wasn't carrying the boy. You carry him, strapping lad of 17 years old. So you have to kind of get this part of it and figure it out. So he laughs, but he's not laughing with the laughter of remembrance or the laughter of rejoicing. He's laughing with a laughter of disdain. How do we know this? The form is an intensive form, and we also know it by context. So his laughter is not their shared joy. He doesn't share any joy with them at all. In fact, this is not altogether too different, folks, what we're looking at here now, than what Joseph's brothers felt for him. And you think about this now. These boys all came along. In Joseph's family, these boys all came along. They were... Leah's children, they were the children of Bilhah and Zilpah. And finally, at long last, she too was barren, Rachel gives birth to her first of two children, and his name was Joseph. And all of a sudden, he's got a coat of many colors. He's the fair-haired boy. He's obviously his daddy's favorite. And what does the Bible says? They were jealous of him, they hated him, they envied him. And this is what's happening now. And you can, it's not right, but you can identify with it. I mean, Ishmael has been king of the hill. He's been the only guy, nothing. He's the only boy Abraham has. Abraham himself was incredibly fond of this boy, as we read when we go back earlier in the record, when it's that verse at the end there, 17, 18, where God says, no, you're going to have a, a son from Sarah, and he's going to be your heir. And remember that, almost pathetic, you can, just, you can just sense his emotion as he comes back to God and he says, oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God says, well, I understand, but he's not going to be the one. So... He's not happy. He's about ready to be pushed aside and moved aside from a position that he's occupied for 17 years, and he's not happy about it. I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying you can identify and understand it. Now, Sarah, she's off here at a little, just a little distance, see, like this. And as women often will do, she catches this. She's observant. She sees this. And I mean with a dead eye of cold, hard insight. She right away says what needs to happen. Verse 10, she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman. 
with her son. You notice through here, no names are used. Not Ishmael, not Hagar. I mean, this is cold. Cast out this bondwoman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And I mean, she has a dead ringer. I mean, she is absolutely flawless in her insight. She sees immediately, here's what she sees. She sees immediately that this is just the beginning of, a, of a, an incompatibility that is only going to get worse and worse and worse as time goes on. Now, the way she handles it, eh, is cold. But we're not guessing here because the New Testament comes along and confirms this. Just think about this. This is, again, something I don't really want to get pulled off into just because it's a big deal. Bruce is teaching Galatians. Let him, <laughs> let him labor with it. But Paul finds an allegory in all of this. And that allegory basically springs from the fact that there was this basic incompatibility between the child of promise who was born he calls it the child of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, the child of promise, and the child who was born by the, the flesh. So let's take a look. But just as at that time, Galatians 4.29, he who was born according to the flesh, that's how he characterizes this, persecuted. So as we know, this laughter is not in a shared joy. You don't have to wonder persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Notice the juxtaposition of those two opposites. The one who was born according to the flesh and the one who was born according to the Spirit. And there is an incompatibility between the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit and the twain do not meet. What man comes up with is in his logic and his strength never meets. It's like oil and water with what God comes up with and so, what does the scripture say? Sarah nailed it. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And then Paul does a little more with this when you get to the next chapter. Here's this incompatibility. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So... Back to Sarah for a minute, you know, this is our standard, folks. Uh, <laughs> you know, you can speak the truth, and the words can be right, and you can do damage. Because we're, we're, we're on a higher level. God commands of us not just to speak the truth. He does command that, but to speak the truth in love. And there's not a lot of love. There's just <laughs> cold harshness in this, although she's right. And I'm sure we've all had that handling before by people that write what they say, but just the way they say it is such that they don't do any good. They kill their own message because of the spirit and the way in which uh, the message is delivered. So <laughs> here's your thing, though. can always look to God. God doesn't do that. And so when God comes to Abraham, he comes, first of all, with comfort. He says to him, verse number 11, Verse 12, rather, God said to Abraham, don't be displeased because of this boy. He comes to him with wisdom, whatever Sarah says to you do. In other words, if, if Abraham was thinking, oh, what am I going to do? I love this boy. He's my son. 
but Sarah is dead set against this. Who's right? What do I do? And God settles the matter for him. So there's the guidance that he needs in the situation. And then he gives him encouragement. He says, yes, the boy needs to leave, but I'll make of him, verse 13, a nation because he is your offspring. So that's how God handles the matter. Yet, here's the point. In blemish number one, this stain on the feast. I mean, they're having a feast. And it's like somebody ruins it. And it's all traceable really back to the lapse that Abraham and Sarah had when Sarah proposed this whole idea of, well, take my handmaid. Maybe that's the way I'm going to get children. We've got to keep moving. Sorry. Now, how in the world does this story of Abimelech fit into all of this? Well, it's lapse number two. Why do I say that? Well, when Abimelech comes to Abraham, you'll notice that he's proposing a covenant between the two. And you might also notice his language when he says in verse 23, Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So I think that to Abimelech, Abraham was a little bit of a, an anomaly. A little hard to explain. A little confusing, maybe. Because the first thing out of his mouth in verse 22 is, God is with you. Well, he can obviously see that. I mean, when, when the jailkeeper came in there, and Joseph had been thrown in the, the jail. Didn't take him long to say the very same thing about Joseph, did it? He could see that God was with him. How do you tell that? Well, you, in the case of Abraham, it wasn't too hard to miss. I mean, Abraham was a mighty prince. Abraham had wealth. He had all the earmarks of God's favor and blessing upon him. So Abimelech's looking at this guy, and he says, well, God's obviously with this guy, but and called him a prophet, but he'd also found this prophet capable of deception, which, if you recall back in chapter 27, they got off to a rocky start because Abraham, when he came first into the land of the Philistines, said to Abimelech, she's my sister. And Abimelech said, oh, well, in that case, and took her into his home. And you, you remember the story, it was just last week. So it's little wonder that he comes to Abraham now. He thinks, he thinks of Abraham's might. After all, remember, this is the guy, Abraham, who took all his household, 318 of them, trained, King James says armed. That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? In modern times to have, I mean, I don't really know what that consisted of, but I think about in modern times, you'd have to have an armory. But this is the guy that went after the four kings, along with his three confederates. So we're not told how many people that represented, but he's got a small fighting force, but he sure has a lot of courage and a lot of trust in his God. And these guys had come down there, and they'd been victorious over the five kings of the plain. They'd been victorious over the Rephaim, the Carnium, all this crowd they took care of. I mean, they mopped up in that campaign. And they're headed back home, 
And Abraham finds out about Lot being taken captive, and he makes off after him and attacks him by night and decimates him. So you can see why Abimelech would call him a mighty prince. So a covenant is completely understandable. You want someone like that on your side. Yet a covenant is also understandable if you want to be sure you hold somebody's feet to the fire. That they're not going to get shifty with you. So it's a lesson well observed and learned that trust is fragile. Trust is built over time and lost in a moment and takes time to rebuild. So Abimelech looks at Abraham and says, yeesh, you know, see, it's kind of understandable what's going on here. He proposes the treaty, but the hesitance and the unease is understandable. But they work things out, and all I'm making the point is, is this second lapse, joy, lapse, lapse, the second little blemish in the chapter is all traceable back again to a failing, a lapse on the part of Abraham. Let's come to the third thing, because this is the part we've got to close with, because this is to me, I mean, this is, the, this is the icing on the cake. The end note and the keynote were back to joy, this time as God himself. Let me show you how I think we can see this. How exactly God does this, we're not told. But God reveals himself to Abraham by a new name. We have not encountered this name before. We have heretofore encountered several names. For example, in chapter 14, verse 18, God reveals himself as the Most High God, El Elyon, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And that was an important name in that context in which those kings came down there and took off all that stuff and he had selfish Lot who was saying, well, give me that property over there. And that, that, none of that bothers God because God owns it all. And so when Melchizedek comes out and he pays him tithes of all, the reason he can be, I pointed this out at the time, the reason he can be generous with such a selfish individual as Lot, and the reason that he can pay tithes to Abraham is because God owns it all anyway. He can pay tithes to Melchizedek because God's faithful. God's given him everything he has, and where that 10% came from, there's a lot more. So that's El Elyon. He, in chapter 16, verse 13, revealed himself to Hagar, but who undoubtedly came back and told the story, when the other time she was out in the wilderness and didn't quite know what to do because this was her second skirmish with Sarah. The first time, she, Hagar was to blame for this. The second time, Ishmael was to blame. But nevertheless, she's out there in the wilderness and Sarah ran her off. Remember that? Back in chapter 16, and God finds her there in the wilderness and reveals to her a well, and she names that well Bir Lahai Roy, El Roy. And it means the well of him who lives and sees. And it commemorated the fact that there she was out there and thought that she was helpless, and all along God saw everything she was going through and everything she needed. Now, we don't get a story. We don't get any background. We just get a name. El Galam, the everlasting God. I want to play off of that a little bit. Because if we're going to talk about everlasting, see, God never goes out of business. You and I were temporary. God isn't temporary. 
He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In every generation, God is there. He's ever there. And so in this particular case, what in the world is he rejoicing in? He's rejoicing in El Olam, the everlasting God who's ever faithful, who has proven to him he's ever faithful to his promises. What's that? Isaac in the chapter. He's ever faithful in his provision. What's that? The well. He dug the well. By the way, now he, he, owns, he actually owns something in the land of Canaan, a well. Other than that, he doesn't own anything. Get to chapter 23, he's going to own a burial lot. And that's going to be about it. But he owns a well now, and Abimelech has said, this is your well. He accepted the seven ewe lambs, they made a covenant. I agree, this is your well. See, this is really important because if you're living out in the wilderness, and, and you, you have, how many people have been to the Negev? Or southern Israel? Bruce? Anybody else? Oh, come on, folks. You gotta get with the program. Get over there. Well, you might wanna wait for it to get a little, pe- little more peace going on, but if you can get a chance, see, now you missed it because we've got problems over there now. But I will tell you this this is just a 15 second aside, it's free too. It'll be worth every dollar. It'll be worth every, it'll transform your understanding of the scripture. You get over there and see all this stuff. But anyway, you don't make it too far down there in that Negev without water. Matter of fact, you don't make it too far in the Grand Canyon without water. How many have been there? I'll try that. Okay, I'm doing a little better on that one. You know, I have a book at home on my shelf. It's not as macabre as it sounds. It's called Death in the Grand Canyon. I don't know where I got wind of that, but it intrigued me, and I went and bought that book. It's that thick. You mean that many people have died in there? It's the stories of all the people, well, maybe not all, but it's the stories all they have, and how people have perished in that place. It'll fool you. It's deadly. And if, you, if you're not prepared for it and don't know what you're getting into, you're in bad trouble. I mean, not to go at the northern rim and look at it. I'm talking about going down in there. Well. The well was important, so maybe this would be a better illustration. So what if you're a cattle rancher in the West and you depend on this particular source of water coming through, but the guy up above you buys the property and decides he's going to divert that water or do something different with it? Think about that for a minute. What are you going to do now? You probably try to show up there in your Ford 250 with a shotgun. You're going to have words over this. You can't do that with the water. The well was important, and it was a symbol of God's provision, and God is ever faithful in his protection. He brought peace with Abimelech. And Abraham commemorates this. Do you ever wonder why in the world it says he planted a tamarisk tree? What on earth? Usually it says Abraham built an altar. This time it says Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. He'd be right up to date now, right? You'll buy a tree, plant a tree. This tree's an evergreen tree. El El Yolam, the everlasting God, evergreen tree. They, They tie in together. He's commemorating this truth. 
how exactly God revealed this name, but obviously he did. And El Abraham is celebrating this. It's, it's just brought immeasurable joy to him to come to this point in his life. He's 100 years old. He comes to this place in his life and he looks back and he sees all the things that God has done and he says, God is ever faithful to his promises. He's ever faithful in his provision. He's ever faithful in his protection. He has not once failed me. And I love that verse in the Psalms where the psalmist says, because this is kind of the same idea, I have been young. See, I say that too. It's in the past tense. I have been young and now am old. Eh. That was a psalmist. I'm not saying that. I have been young and now I'm old, yet have I never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. I would use that verse all the time in ministry with older people because what you have in that verse is someone who's at that point in life and looking back on a ton of years. And you are in a position now to confirm Many things. And so what the psalmist says, you know what? He's El Nolam. He's never failed me. He's never forsaken me. And he won't. But that's what, that, that's what this joy is. So, yeah, the Christian life is filled with joy and trials. We know this from James. But it's an interesting thought. Think about this and take it away with you from the lesson today, when that joy is interrupted, when the joy of the life of faith is interrupted, how many times is that basically traceable back to our mistakes, our lapses? And it's just a reminder to us to try to seek God in all things and be as faithful as we possibly can. We, I have a minute or two, anybody with a question or comment? Oh, you want to <clears throat> go check the desserts? <laughs> okay, we'll pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your kindness. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.